Good to see you this morning. Welcome to Calvary Baptist Church. And, uh, so I have to relearn everything on this. I got that uh, two-week version of something. And uh, unfortunately, it caused me to miss um, the Thanksgiving Day meal, which is uh, one of my favorite fellowship opportunities in the whole year. And uh, so thank you to all of you who uh, work to put that on that day. I heard it was a great blessing, of course. And then last week, I got to watch the Christmas program uh, by uh, the internet, and it's nowhere near like being here, uh, but still the Holy Spirit really works through everything and just enjoyed being a part of things in that way. And, and thank you on behalf of all of us for those of you who took that step of faith to bless us on that, that night. Let's stand together, and by the way, it is very good to see you again. Um, I've watched more football, uh, just this side of sin. I can't work when I'm sick, so I didn't use my voice that much, except to yell at the Raiders, Um, uh, but other than that, so we'll hope that it holds up uh, well this morning. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 1, Sunday morning. We're studying the book of Philippians together. And uh, uh, we find ourselves in verse 19. As we're making our way there, just a reminder, on Sunday nights we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and uh, we'll be studying the Gospel according to John tonight, chapter 10. And each of you are invited to come out, read the chapter this afternoon, and we'll tear into it this evening. Chapter 1, verse 19. Paul writes, by the Spirit of God, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always. So uh, now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor, yet what I shall choose I cannot tell. For I'm hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. That you're rejoicing for me, may be more abundant in Christ Jesus by my coming to you uh, again. Let's pray together. Father, we have spoken to you and sung to you our worship this morning, and we now, we ask as we turn to your word that you would speak to us in this beautiful, unfiltered, clear, perfect way that your word does. And just the perfect measure of what it is that we need to hear from you and what it is that comes from a father's heart to his children and indeed to the whole world. Would you give us ears to hear your voice through your word this morning? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We remember that the Apostle Paul was in Roman custody in the city of Rome awaiting a trial uh, before Caesar Nero. And not only was the Apostle Paul uh, innocent of any kind of crime or any kind of wrongdoing, but in fact, in the entire three years of his 
uh, the course of his Roman incarceration, not even a single charge had been brought uh, against him, all the way from uh, Jerusalem to Caesarea and then ultimately here uh, to Rome. And so, uh, though completely innocent, there was still the strong possibility that he might be sentenced to death. Now, court trials are, can be very interesting things, both then and now, uh, because there are no sure outcomes in a court trial. A couple quotes in this regard. One man wrote, A jury consists of 12 persons chosen to decide who has the better lawyer. And that's more true than we like to admit. Uh, Someone else wrote, when you go into court, you are putting your fate into the hands of 12 people who weren't smart enough to get out of jury duty. uh, A sobering thought, but uh, a a little more uh, serious note. One very famous United States attorney of the past, he said of this uncertainty, he said, Uh, a judge actually, he said, there is no such thing as justice, in or out of court. And uh, something of a wit, he also wrote, I have never killed a man, but I have read many obituaries with great pleasure. Uh, That was a throw-in. I thought it was amusing. Now, Jesus declared in, in this very regard in his Sermon on the Mount, he said, agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and uh, you will be thrown into prison. And even though the Apostle Paul's uh, uh, hearing and his trial would not be before a jury, uh, it would be before a a single man, and that is the uh, emperor of Rome, Uh, There was no uh, consolation to Paul in that, given the fact that the man was, and the emperor was the famously unstable Roman uh, emperor Nero. And so he recognized that even though he was not only innocent of any wrongdoing, uh, but without any charge of uh, wrongdoing, but that anything could happen. Paul expresses his confidence concerning his deliverance from all of this in verses 19 and 20. And he's got all of these circumstances around him that are uh, outwardly uh, uncertain. And we notice, though, that Paul anticipates there in verse 19 being delivered or being released from his incarceration, from prison. And he felt that that would occur as a Uh, through the prayers of the saints of the church in Philippi and through the supply of the Holy Spirit. In fact, he he was fully convinced that he would be released. Uh, He states, I know, uh, and in light of the fact that his innocence had become evident to the entire palace guard uh, and, uh, and beyond as we studied last time. Later in verse 25, he expressed the same confidence again that he would be released. And exactly how Paul knew that is a certainty, we aren't told, uh, but by some means of revelation from God. So whether by a vision or a dream or a word of knowledge or a prophecy or uh, a word of, of wisdom, by some means. 
And of course, as we look back in church history, uh, it informs us that's exactly what happened with the Apostle Paul. We have no details in the Scriptures concerning his trial uh, before Caesar Nero. All that we do know is that as a result of that hearing, he was uh, uh, cleared of any kind of wrongdoing, released in 62 AD, was able to continue his apostolic ministry to the early church on into 64 AD, and then as a part of the great, a great persecution of Christians under Caesar Nero in blaming Christians for the burning of Rome, uh, he was arrested uh, finally and then martyred. Also notice that his uh, foundational to his confidence in his difficulty of his circumstances were uh, the prayers of the church at Philippi uh, for him. And sometimes uh, we can kind of come to believe, I think, that the greatest witness that we can uh, ever have as Christians is to somehow portray uh, general perfection or being on top of every single need in our life, not asking anybody for help or not even asking uh, anyone uh, for prayer. And we don't need the prayers of other people. And so I don't know where the pressure comes from. Sometimes I think it's just personality. Uh, sometimes it can be the pressure of a secular culture, even Christian culture in, in some environments. Uh, but uh, I do know that all of that is very, very far from the Christian life that's described in the Bible and certainly from the Christian life that the Apostle Paul models to us, not only here, uh, but elsewhere. One thing you learn about the Apostle Paul, if you look at his relationship with God and his relationship with Christians, is he asked everybody for prayer. He got on every single prayer list he could possibly get his name on, and, and was unabashed related uh, to that. And when you're in a great trial or difficulty, it's so important to ask Christians to pray for you, to pray for us, uh, to use the prayer team and the prayer ministry online. You go to that homepage and and there's the prayer icon there, and you'll have uh, 200 people praying for you inside of an hour uh, related to your need. And this, of course, is one of the reasons that fellowship is so important in the body of Christ and in a local church, that we develop relationships with one another that are such that are meaningful enough that we can immediately ask two, three, four people to pray for us related to uh, a need that we have going on uh, in our lives, just like Paul did with those uh, in Philippi, someone you can approach in a moment's notice uh, for prayer. And so you notice the Apostle Paul, he's, he's incarcerated, it's unjustly, but he doesn't just silently uh, succumb to his circumstances. As, as we can be prone to do, and maybe some of us are doing uh, here this morning, he esteemed the prayers of those Christians in Philippi to be of, of greater power and, and greater effect than even the government of Rome and even the emperor of Rome at the time. He knew what would be the outcome of this trial, 
uh, and, and he's holding on to a promise of God related to that. He knows he's going to be released, but he still wants uh, people to pray for him. The other thing that he speaks of in terms of an encouragement uh, to himself in these circumstances is the supply or the help of the Holy Spirit. Confident that the Holy Spirit would give him the power, give him the strength, the presence of the Holy Spirit to get him from what he was in the middle of at that moment all the way to the other side of the fulfillment of the promise that God had given to him related to uh, his release. And he recognized that the Holy Spirit is involved in his life, the Holy Spirit that Jesus called another helper, one just like him, uh, involved in Paul's uh, circumstances. And notice that while his prayer request of them and his expression of confidence in uh, the leading and the power, empowering of the Holy Spirit, including, uh, included the fact that his uh, innocence would be vindicated one day when he stood before Caesar, uh, his greatest concern was that he would conduct himself before Caesar on that day in a way that magnified Christ. And he brings that out in verse 20. That's his great concern. Not how he's going to get out, when he's going to get out. He knows that before that happens, he has an appointment before the single most powerful uh, human being in the world at that time, a hearing before him. And his longing is that he will magnify Christ at that hearing. And he asked, first of all, that in nothing he should be uh, ashamed. So that when he looks back on that opportunity to magnify Jesus before the emperor, he knows that that is coming uh, in his life, that he will be able to conduct himself in such a way that for the rest of his life, he will not regret what it is that he said and what he did and how he represented Christ uh, before uh, Caesar Nero. And the second thing uh, that he was concerned about is that he would do it with all boldness, that he wouldn't be influ influenced by kind of the august environment uh, of anything associated with a Roman emperor, all of the colors, all of the sights, all of the pageantry, all of the wood, all of the marble, all of the, not only Nero, but all of his officials there uh, at the site as well, all of it intended to intimidate whoever it is that stood before Nero to let them know this is the emperor and you are not the emperor and your life is in his hands. And Paul said, would you pray for me for boldness that the environment would not intimidate me in such a way that I would not magnify Christ as I desire uh, to do. And sometimes I think that we can look at the Apostle Paul and just think that he was bold by nature. Ah, yeah, we see Paul's boldness in this environment and that situation in the book of Acts, and it's just because he was uh, born bold, and then he died bold. And, but it, that, again, is to be ignorant of the Apostle Paul. He's a strong person, to be sure. But he continually asked for prayer of the churches that he established that he would have boldness in his calling as an apostle. 
and that he would operate within that calling with the boldness that it uh, required. And so he was continually asking for prayer in that regard. I don't know when is the last time you uh, have asked the Lord for boldness or asked people to pray for you for boldness in some appointment you're going into, some situation that you're going into, uh, the Christmas season, a family gathering, whatever it might be to say, God, would you give me the boldness to live the Christian life I live in private in this environment as well, that I might represent Christ as well, uh, uh, magnify him uh, well. It doesn't mean you take somebody in a headlock and put them in the corner and say, I'm not letting you go until you receive Christ. But it's to be who we are and not to allow the environment then to dictate uh, uh, who and, and what we are uh, otherwise. And Paul uh, prayed for boldness in his own life and he asked people for prayer. And third, the, uh, his desire that he would magnify Jesus and that he would magnify Jesus whether that resulted in life uh, his freedom or uh, death, his e execution. And we, that word magnify there, it means to exalt or to glorify or to make great or to honor. And so he says, whether by life or whether by death, he, he knew he wasn't going to die uh, at this time. Uh, this communicates his total commitment to magnifying Christ, what, uh, even if it, if it did uh, mean uh, death. And Paul doesn't leave us there with that, that statement that he makes in, in verse 20. He goes on to explain to them and explain to us why he could speak of uh, a, 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 an immediate future of either life or death and speak of them as equally acceptable outcomes to him uh, so long as it meant magnifying Jesus. And so you say, where does that come from? What kind of a commitment does he have that a, an individual, a Christian, can look at life and look at death with, uh, with, with that kind of surrender and that kind of peace? And Paul tells us in verse 21, in one of the greatest autobiographical statements of Paul, uh, in all of his epistles. And he says there in verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die uh, is gain. To live is Christ. He said, my life is Christ. He's not just the most important part of my life. He is uh, my life. And my life is lived in order to magnify him, to know him and to make him known as the old saying goes. And, and this is supreme in his life. And so to live is Christ. My life is all about Christ. And then he said to die is gain. Well, if one can honestly say of life, as the Apostle Paul uh, did, to live is Christ, then to die is gain uh, only follows that. Because at death... A Christian's relationship with Jesus moves from seeing him through a glass darkly and then to seeing him face to face. Death simply brings a Christian 
into the most intimate, personal uh, relationship with Him that's possible. It is then to be with Christ, as He states there in, in verse 23 as well. Now, in verse 21, He provides us with this beautiful description of the Christian life. And, and so much so that verse 21 is a verse that most Christians will sooner or later uh, commit to memory. But it also provides a very, very helpful test for our lives um, as Christians. And first we recognize that in this statement as Paul makes it, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, there's the recognition that every person in this room Indeed, every single person in this world uh, will finish that first part of Paul's statement with something. To live is something. And whatever we fill that in, this is what I live for. This is what I live to magnify in my life. This is what and who is magnified in my life. And in filling in the rest of that sentence, Paul filled it in for himself. But it doesn't mean that that's the answer for everybody. He said, for to me to live is Christ. He didn't say this is a uniform uh, uh, stand of all Christians and certainly not uh, of, of someone in the world. And so uh, we'll fill it in with something, and in doing so, we will reveal the master passion of our lives, the God of our lives. For instance, some people, being honest, would finish the sentence, uh, for me to live uh, is money, or for me to live is sex, or for me to live is power, or for me to live is fame and reputation. Uh, or likes, or followers, or for me to live as sports, for me to live as entertainment, or relationships, or even family. And if that list is incomplete for any of us in the room here today, all we need to know, do in order to identify what it is that we live for and who we are living for is just to examine where does our discretionary time go in life? Where, do our, where does our discretionary money get spent uh, in life? What do we find ourselves thinking about the most in life? And we'll be very close to identifying uh, how we would end that sentence. But we notice uh, as well that only the person who declares to live as Christ is then able to finish that sentence as Paul did, and then to be able to say, and to die is gain. In other words, for me to live uh, is money, uh, then to die is to lose it all. Uh, for uh, to me to live is power, to die is to lose it all. For me to live is fame, and to die is to be immediately forgotten. There's a, a, a famous account concerning William Gladstone. He was a very distinguished uh, politician in the 1800s in England. Many of you have probably heard his name. He was prime minister for 12 years, three different terms of four years uh, of England, the highest position you can hold uh, there in their government. 
And uh, there's an account that speaks to this very thing. A young man uh, came to Gladstone while he was Prime Minister of England and said, Mr. Gladstone, I would appreciate your giving me a few minutes in which I might lay before you my plans for the future. I would like to study law. Yes, said the great statesman, and then what then? Uh, Then, sir, I would like to gain entrance to the bar of England. Yes, young man, and what then? Uh, Then, sir, I hope to have a place in Parliament, in the House of Lords. Yes, young man, and what then, pressed Gladstone. And then I hope to do great things for Britain. Yes, young man, and what then? And then, sir, I hope to retire and take life easy. Yes, young man, and what then, Uh, Gladstone tenaciously asked. Well, then, Mr. Gladstone, I suppose I will uh, die. And then Gladstone said, yes, young man, and what then? And the young man hesitated and then said, I never thought any further than that, sir. And the young man was looked at by Gladstone sternly and uh, steadily. And Gladstone said, young man, you are a fool. Go home and think life through. And what Gladstone might have lacked in terms of tact... Uh, He more than made up for, in terms of uh, clarity, making the the point of the foolishness of planning out an entire life, much less living an entire life without giving any consideration to the prospect and the reality of death and what lies beyond it, and how to adequately prepare for it. And of course, only a faith in Jesus does that. And only the person who, like Paul, can say to live is Christ, is then able to say to die is gain. Jesus taught, for what will it profit a man if he gains the entire world and loses his own uh, soul? And maybe there are one or two of us in the room here today, and whether by virtue of age or your accomplishments or your wealth or your reputation uh, or just uh, by virtue of the aversion of our culture to confront anyone on anything, even uh, with eternal consequences, and no one in the world at this point in your life would ever dare to call you a fool for living a life without any preparation for death and what lies beyond uh, death. And somebody, though, needs to deliver that message. And the importance of allowing Mr. Gladstone to be that messenger this morning and to give some thought to what it is that he said to that young man and would say to any man or woman in that same place. Well, you can look at verse 21 and say, well, this is a fanatical kind of Christianity, or this is a Christianity that is limited for uh, apostles, and, and just dismiss it uh, as, as a Christian. But the wise Christian won't do it. The wise Christian will find a quiet place to sit before God somewhere, and then fill in the first statement honestly before God. If the truth be known, God, 
for me to live is, and then fill in that blank. And if that answer is anything other than Christ, then to ask God for whatever kind of changes need to be made in order that each of us would be able to say that uh, with the same honesty and blessing that the Apostle Paul did. You notice that he spoke in verses 22 to 26 uh, of being uh, pressed between a rock and a hard place, hard pressed between uh, the two. The decision about his release is completely out of his hands. It's not even in Nero's hands. God has told him that he's going to be uh, released, and, and he knows that's going to be uh, the case. His future is completely in the hands uh, of the Lord. But he does, as any of us would do with friends that we can trust uh, spiritually or spiritually mature, and he certainly had a friendship relationship with this church, and I think he gave himself to some sanctified speculation about which of the two results he would choose if he was given uh, a chance. And the two choices that he weighed were between the choice of being executed, verse 23, as a result of a guilty verdict, or verse 22, being set free to continue his public ministry as an apostle. Concerning execution in verse 23, he declared that that would immediately put him with Christ. He would immediately be with Christ. He's not wanting to die. He's not longing to die to escape his, his circumstances. Uh, he just wanted to be with Christ. And there's a difference there. When Paul thinks of heaven, he doesn't think of the streets of gold and all of those things. He thinks of Christ. He thinks of this relationship now being one of face to face. His conviction in verse 25 uh, was that the second scenario would occur, that he would be released from custody and resume his apostolic authority, which would be best, he said, for their uh, progress and their uh, joy of faith. And in this, the Apostle Paul is, is simply modeling the other-centeredness that marks the entire uh, letter, to not do what is best for you, but do what is best for others. And, and this is what he's modeling here in, in all of this. Now, in closing, allow me to apply this section of Scripture to the subject of uh, joy in the Christian life as we will do throughout uh, the book. Would you notice the following phrases and words that Paul uses in this passage? And I'd like you to look at them with your own eyes. In verse 19, notice, I know. In verse 20, earnest expectation. In verse 20, hope. In verse 20, with all boldness. In verse 25, being confident of this. And here we have the Apostle Paul in this very difficult circumstance even potentially life-threatening circumstance. And we notice that he's in, as he's in that circumstance that he operated from, I know my earnest expectation, hope with all boldness, being confident of this. 
And one of the things that the Apostle Paul is modeling for us in communicating to us as Christians is that we must not allow life to run roughshod over us uh, or to bully us or our circumstances to intimidate us. Life is to be met head-on with a faith in God and a faith in His Word and a faith in His promises. The circumstances in our life, difficult circumstances in our life, any circumstance, they don't get a free ride. They're not allowed to just run roughshod over us and, uh, and we never stand up to meet them or to oppose them in some significant way. The Apostle Paul uh, did exactly that. Life is to be met head on with faith in God and faith in His Word and His promises, with, I know, with earnest expectation, with hope, with all boldness, with being confident of this. And if we fail to do so, as Christians, we will always view ourselves as being under the circumstances in life, or worse yet, being a victim of our circumstances in life, and will certainly end up living a life that's completely devoid of joy. Paul had a revelation, a promise from God concerning his coming deliverance from his physical circumstance that not Rome, that not even himself, but God would have the final say in his life and in this circumstance. And he lived in the full confidence of that. Whatever his present circumstances were, he navigated them, he assessed them in the light of the promise that God had given to him. And we have on our laps here this morning an entire Bible filled with these kind of promises, filled with these kind of assurances that God has written to us. We do not live under our circumstances. No Christian does. We are not victims of our circumstances. No Christian is. We are not, as someone has put it, merely a cork uh, on the waters of life. We are not without God in this uh, world. And so we must not allow the bullies that inhabit the difficult circumstances in life with us to bully us into a joyless, miserable Christian life. The bullies of fear, of the intimidators of uncertainty, the sense of uncertainty or hopelessness or anger or worry or apathy or then just giving up in the circumstance. The only way to defeat a bully is to stand up to that, uh, that bully. And how do we do that? By finding a promise in God's Word associated with our circumstance, our difficulty, and then declaring it to ourselves most of all concerning our circumstance and say of that passage, of that promise of God, I know it is my earnest expectation. It is my hope with all boldness being confident of this. 
and to meet these intimidators in our lives, whether from within or from without, and most often they're from within, and to meet these things with a Holy Spirit faith in God and in His Word. The realization, as Jesus said, that heaven and earth is going to pass away. Every circumstance in our life is going to pass away. But Jesus said His Word will never pass away. Paul writes of this entire thing and encapsulates it actually in a single verse. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, where he writes to the church at Corinth, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Taking every thought that comes into our minds that exalts itself against what we know to be true of God. It exalts itself against the Word of God, the promises of God, recognizing it to be a lie, and then taking that thought captive in the power of the Spirit. It fails the test of the Word, and then casting it out of my uh, mind. And what ultimately develops within our lives as Christians is what is called a disciplined uh, mind. And, and to continue to do so, to continue to verbalize our faith and confidence in God's outcome, even as Paul did here, until the fulfillment of God's promises. And then like Paul, we'll experience joy as he did, even in the midst of difficulty. Even in the midst of that time uh, that uh, the promise is claimed, and the trial comes to an end. And most of life is lived between the time that the promise is claimed and then the fulfillment of that promise. And if I go without joy during those seasons in my life, my life will be almost entirely absent of joy even as a uh, Christian but instead to look at it and be able to say in the power of the Holy Spirit, I can't wait to see how this promise of God is going to come to fulfillment in this circumstance of mine. That's how Paul looked at things and and what he commends to us. And so expectations, he speaks of them. We all have them in our lives this morning. The only question is whether we're living with expectations that are unworthy of a child of God, like, I'm doomed, I'm never going to survive uh, this, I won't make it, or whether my expectations are ones that are worthy of God, the, the ones that God has provided to us. If God is for me, who can be against me? I can do all things through Christ, who strengthens me. My God shall supply all of your needs according to His riches in glory. And to find a promise and to push back, to push back against hopelessness and fear and worry and giving up and then having done all to stand, to stand and stand you will and stand I will with that sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. I remember a great song sung by Daryl Mansfield entitled Bible Study. If you've never listened to it, you can YouTube it later. Please don't right now. But there's a line in that 
song and toward the end as, as it closes, he sings, um, kick the devil in the face. And, and uh, you have to get it in its context a little bit as he's singing it. And, and that might be more graphically stated than a lot of people are comfortable with. And uh, it, it's not too graphic for me. Uh, but there's something to be said for a Christian standing up and saying, I am not going to get pushed around spiritually and emotionally and mentally by my circumstances in life. I'm going to meet them with the promises of God and in the power of the Holy Spirit and undergirded by the prayers of God's people. And to meet these things, these circumstances, with that kind of boldness, with a faith uh, in God. And so we ask ourselves this morning, are we letting our circumstances push us around this morning? And are circumstances affecting us emotionally, mentally, spiritually, even physically? And physical circumstances can be very difficult. Paul's were. They can be outwardly uncertain without allowing them to then determine the quality of my spiritual, my emotional, my mental uh, health as a Christian. Let me give you one more verse to, uh, of, of hundreds that, that uh, we could look at here this morning from the Bible to prime the pump and get us started with this kind of boldness and this kind of, uh, of, uh, of, of joy that is found in it. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 27, God said, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for uh, me? Take the entire chapter of Romans chapter 8 and claim all of those promises all the way through. Personalize them. Uh, make them our own and then wield them as the sword of the Spirit in the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And then we'll experience all of the power and all of the confidence and faith and joy that comes with doing so. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, I think that most of us can recognize the bullies of the world, the flesh, and the devil uh, in our lives, how they come to attempt to push us around and, and to dictate and to fashion our lives. And we thank you for this revelation through the Apostle Paul as a part of his joy and a part of our joy is not to allow that to happen, but to stand up to it, to claim the promise, to believe that the circumstance will not outlive the fulfillment of that promise. And I pray for myself, I pray for each one of us here that are um, in this room and then beyond listening for, because of sickness and other things, and anywhere that we're getting pushed around in life and allowing ourselves to be pushed around, Lord, to be intimidated, to be beaten down spiritually and emotionally and mentally by circumstances, by the devil, by our own flesh telling us lies, that you would use this time in your word to raise us up out of that place and into this place of, of power and this place of, of faith and joy 
that Paul not only experienced, but put to the pen in order that we might experience it as well. We pray for this work of your Spirit in each one of our lives, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.